Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special part of the season where we're getting into the trade deadline. We're getting into the stretch run of the season, and we got to start checking in around the league. We're going to check in with a bunch of friends across the league over the next couple of weeks today, joined by my good friend Alyssa to talk about the Winnipeg Jets and actually about the team, not about the Gary Bettman stuff, though. We will touch on that a little bit. So how are we doing, first of all? Last time I talked to you about the Jets, they were in a loser-off with the Calgary Flames, where neither <laughs> team wanted to make the playoffs last year. And the Jets did, by no fault of, no credit of their own. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's It's been, a lot has happened uh, since then, and I think a lot of Jets fans were a little worried that um, we were going to see colors of that Jets team coming into this year as, you know, at the Christmas time check-in, we were in a similar place that we were last year as Jets fans, you know, feeling excited, feeling happy. But the reason that the Jets were doing so well last year was a little bit different than the reason they were this year. A couple different contributing factors and things looked a little bit more sustainable this year. A couple of scary stretches leading up to the All-Star break where we weren't loving everything we were seeing. Things are looking a little bit better lately. And I feel like a lot of Jets fans woes are more in line with things like decision making as opposed to player performances which uh, I'm okay with for the time being because we know that we have some players that are able to to kind of contribute and make sure that this team is kind of where they want to be the Jets are fascinating to me because when I look at them on paper this is a very talented team but for whatever reason it always feels like there's one or two guys who are just kind of I don't know who they pissed off, who on the coaching staff or in the front office that doesn't like them. Because I look at the Jets, I'm like, why isn't Nick Ehlers one of like, recognized as one of the 20, 30 best players in the entire world? You know, why is Kyle Connor not in the conversation for best goal scorer in the league? And then I, I see things like I was reading Murat's article the other day about how Bonus had to sit down with them about their defensive effort the other day. And it's just like, that's not why these guys are here. If we're asking Kyle Connor's defense to be the difference between the Jets winning and losing, I feel like we have bigger issues. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think, uh, you know, there there are definitely some players that I feel like are being there. There are certain expectations that are being put on them, and it seems a bit different in theory as opposed to in practice and some cu- confusing things kind of like you're alluding to on the decision making end, because Kyle Connor isn't being expected to, you know, be a defensive god or anything like that. However, the coaching staff keeps putting him out in situations where he's expected to. And when he doesn't, it looks poorly. But then they do the same thing with Nikolai Ehlers. And when it goes poorly for both of those players, one gets punished and the other doesn't. And there's some very interesting philosophy that I feel like I'm watching when I when I hear some of the presser quotes and watch the execution of the decision making in the line roll out over the course of the games. But um, yeah, I... There are so many theories. Everyone has their own opinions and theories on why they think certain players are treated certain ways and why others aren't and all those kinds of things. But like you said, at the end of the day, Nikolai Ehlers is one of the most fabulous skaters in the NHL and Cal Connor is an excellent goal scorer. And I look forward to the day that we can utilize them as such. It's like the meme that we're leaving this discourse in 2023. We have no more energy for this type deal. Yeah, it's frustrating because as someone who is a casual Jets enjoyer, I see a lot of talent. I see Rick Bonus. I have all of my preconceived notions about Rick Bonus from, you know, being alive the last 20 years and seeing how he's coached teams. I mean, we talked about it last year where he got a lot of credit for the team playing better last year, when in reality, they were just kind of getting 
bounces to go their way. Would you say it's more of the same along the lines of just they're surviving, they're getting by on their talent? Or do you think there's been genuine progress since last year as far as not just treading water, but genuinely being a good team? Yeah, I, uh, I definitely think that it is the latter this year, which is a very exciting thing. I think there's a lot more um, structure that kind of has helped this team do a little bit better. Like you were saying last year, they were relying a lot on talent and a lot of that was goaltender talent that they were kind of relying on a couple of good shooters, good scorers and all those kinds of things. But this year, um, you know, the fact that over a long period of time, they were almost setting records across the league with how few goals they were letting in um, over the course of, of consistent games. The fact that most of their scoring is pretty evenly spread out over the course of the lineup. Um, you know, in the last little bit, things have started, you know, picking up more with the the more talented players. We've had more, you know, high point games from guys like Josh Morrissey and Mark Shifley and stuff like that. But um, for a good part of this year, you know, the scoring was really evenly distributed and their defensive metrics were really, really strong. And I think a couple of things changed in the way that they were utilizing the centers in their own zone and also kind of how the transition play was developing from the defense. So I think, I think there actually is a lot of structure stuff that has kind of helped this team really pick it up at five on five and a lot of people did credit both Scott Arneal and Rick Bonus for that at the beginning of the year and uh, now that the structure seems to be kind of you know more integrated in this team and they all feel more comfortable with it they're playing it consistently game in game out it's now about you know things like the special teams and the you know like late game decision making that seems to be where people are frustrated but the fact that we have those good foundational blocks kind of set up I think is really encouraging. That was something I found interesting while I was putting together my note sheet for this episode. They have very mediocre special teams and like the talent for good units is there. As far as the power play, what's not working there? Because I look at a team that can run out Shifley and Ehlers and Connor and have Morrissey running the point, And I, I feel like talent wise, that's one of the better units in the league. Yeah, I'd be interested to see kind of what the the power play looks like percentage wise. Um, and maybe just in 2024 alone, pre-All-Star break and post-All-Star break. Because uh, right now, I actually have no gripes to the power play, but their percentage kind of on the year is really poor because it was awful for the beginning of the season. For, you know, when they were doing so well at um you know over the course of the year at five on five and winning all these games and on that streak or whatever, their power play was still horrific. It was horrendous. Like I there's no other way to describe it. I think so, what's changed a little bit um is that. They brought in Sean Monaghan, and that's been a change for them because um, they play him kind of in the slot there, and he manages the middle of the ice really well, and he can actually hold on to the puck there a little bit, which wasn't really what we were seeing before when Cole Perfetti was there, um, where he he's a little bit more confident with his ability to place the puck from there, which is really great, and it also turns him into a bit of a shooting threat, which is fabulous. And I think the most important change is that they have decided to kind of run the power play a little bit more through the one of five guys that is the most efficient in the spot that they are which is Gabe Velarde on the goal line and I think you know moving away from running all the pucks through Shifley through Josh and through Connor has been a really big change and they they've gotten a lot more goals in the last couple of games which has been really fabulous they haven't had to use their second unit a whole ton because honestly like they've just been scoring a lot on the first unit which has been really nice the second unit still kind of has some issues they they move around that one a lot that's the Nikolai Ehlers unit where they kind of just let him do whatever he wants and then he just has four supporting cast members out there but um they the addition of sean monahan as well as the kind of prowess of gabe velarde and giving more pucks to him in his spot i think has been what's increased this power plays efficiency and i think uh, it looks a lot better right now 
you mentioned Velarde, and we're going to get to the Dubois trade in a second. But one last thing on where, and as far as changes from this year to last year, is there anybody you feel that was on the team last year that's kind of better situated, that's found a little bit of a better role for them, that's helped the team out that you might that most people might not think of? Yeah, I, I actually think that the one that most people will be really surprised and probably honestly disagree with me is, is Josh Morrissey. I know Josh Morrissey had a fabulous year last year and everyone was really excited for him and he was in Norris contention in some people's ballots and all those kinds of things. But I think he's having an even better year this year. He and Dylan DeMello um, are kind of carrying that defensive core and I have no issue with the other four guys, but they've really kind of come into their own um, with really, really managing to shut down their opposition really well. They're getting really tough matchups, playing really you know, tough minutes over the course of a game. And and I think the fact that they're able to stabilize that defense really well has really helped kind of settle the temperament of this team and, and led to a lot of their success. So I think his role now that, you know, we've kind of gotten over the woe of his almost point per game season last year, and now he's able to just kind of, you know, play his game and continue on those parts that he picked up on last year, but he doesn't really have like Norris type eyes on him. And he also, you know, didn't get the C, which doesn't put, there's been a big microscope on, on Adam Lowry this year because of the change in the letter on his Jersey and stuff like that. And I think it's great that Josh Morrissey doesn't have that added pressure on him and stuff like that. So a couple little pieces there, that I think have led to Josh having a really, really under the radar, fabulous season for the Jets. But as far as anyone else, um, like I think Mark Shifley is having a really good year and I think he's got some player. He's been able to play with some decent players over the course of the year and he, he looks better. Um, but beyond that, I think we had a couple players, um, you know, who, who were in decent spots last year and are in decent spots this year, but you're asking me this at, at a bit of a rough time. Cause there are a lot of, ways that the lineup is set up right now that I'm not super keen on. And I think some players would be a lot more effective if we were to move some puzzle pieces around up there. As far as as the team itself, the defense was really kind of the issue the last couple of seasons where a lot of nights it felt like it was either Hellebuck's going to win them this game or that's it. That was really the only path to victory. Whereas this year, as you mentioned, they're still, as of this recording, they've given up the fewest goals in the league. They're giving up the fewest goals per game of any team in the league. How much better does that make a great goalie when they don't have to work as hard? Because it feels like a lot of teams go the other way where they feel we have a great goalie. We can kind of cheap out and concede on defense because our goalie's so good. How has that been this year? It's been so nice. Uh, That's the one thing that's, you know, kind of nice. I've heard some people talking and and making comments about how they consider the Vezina to almost be a lock this year, which is really nice to hear from out-of-market people and stuff like that because Connor Hellebuck, I honestly, and I do, you know, very openly admit that I don't consider myself to be the greatest evaluator of goaltending talent. I don't, uh, I I watch them. I'm like, well, that was a bad rebound. That guy's really leaky, but I'm like positionally not always the best um, when it comes to these. But as far as the performance that he's put up, it's very consistent year in, year out. You know, even right now, I think it was you actually who had a tweet earlier. It was today or yesterday. It was like, man, like kind of crazy that like Shesterkin and Ottinger and all these guys are kind of struggling at the same time. And everyone's like, well, guess who is it? <laughs> um, but um, it, it is really nice to have a little bit of, because you can see that even small changes can can tweak things and shoot him to the top of the rankings across the league um, when he doesn't have to bail out his team for 60 minutes a night and all those kinds of things so so right now it's really nice to have that you know backbone and I won't say that there aren't games still where there you know he he helps them win a game that they perhaps otherwise wouldn't have um but that's kind of what a player is supposed to do that's what all players are supposed to do you're supposed to have a Kyle Connor who can score you two or three goals uh in a game that you're like hey maybe we shouldn't have won this but uh thanks to that guy for bailing us out Connor Hellbuck does that a lot for the Winnipeg Jets and other people have been able to do that a bit this year too which is super nice but um 
it, it bodes better for his overall results that he isn't having to face, you know, 40 high danger shots a night. So really pleased for him and hoping that he continues this for the rest of the way. How do you feel about Winnipeg's approach to roster construction and that you saw them lose two name brand guys. They traded Dubois, they bought out Wheeler and they've opted for a little bit more of a all hands on deck type approach where it might be not as talented on paper as the group they had last year, but you can't argue with the results. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of their approach to uh, to success by committee because I think uh, the way that, the, the roster looks right now like I don't think they have a top 10 center in the NHL I don't think they have a top some people disagree with me on this I don't think they have a necessarily top 5 10 defenseman in the NHL um, I don't think they have a top 10 winger in the NHL other than goaltending I think they have you know the lower end of that elite elite talent I think they have elite talent but it's not you know, the Crosby's, the McDavid's, the dry saddles of the world and those sorts of things. So I think the fact that those players don't have to play that type of role in the team is really nice and allows them to shine to the capacity that they're able to, which is really nice. You know, the fact that, you know, you can win a game and, you know, your your big players don't have to score. Um, I struggle when they do nothing else because, you know, if, if in a game where, you know, you're giving up a ton defensively and all those kinds of things, like at least score a couple goals or something so we don't have to get mad at you. So I, I'm not always pleased with it, but that's all to say that, you know, it's it's just a lot less volatile. It feels a lot you know, more elastic that they have all this runway and, and this room to to let guys kind of have an off night if they need to. And I think it's it's part of the reason that they've had a more successful year is that you can still win a game without, you know, Mark Shifley having three points in that game. Understanding what kind of went down last year, that was really kind of a sliding doors moment because they went into last year with both Shifley and Hellebuck on the last years of their contracts. Wheeler leaves, they trade Dubois for younger pieces. It would have been really easy for Shevel Dayoff to look out for his own neck and say, let's slow this down. Let's take a year or two. Let me buy myself some more time. Let's trade these guys for more younger pieces and kind of reset, reset our group, basically. Get our core younger, get a little bit cheaper. At the time coming into the season, I thought he was a lunatic giving Shifley and Hellebuck those extensions. But it worked out. I, I can't believe Shevel Dayoff's going to have another, you know, five-year window of this when it feels like he's been there forever. I mean, he's the only GM I've ever known. He, he showed up yeah. with the team, you know, in 2011. And uh, I have a lot of thoughts about him over the course of the year. But you know what? The fact that we could say that I don't think he's ever lost a trade um, is not something I don't think I could say about any other GM in the NHL, never mind someone who's been in their chair for over 10 years. So, uh, you know, I have to be a little bit more patient with him, even though I want to get Earth sometimes. But uh, no, I also was unsure of the direction they were going to go. But, you know, the further we got into July and August, the more I thought the extensions were coming because I was sure that, you know, the the trades would have happened, um, you know, and we got closer to training camp. And I was like, all right, they're definitely trying to cook up something because they weren't willing and able to go into this year with both of those guys as pending UFAs. It just wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, I also was a little bit unsure if that was the direction to go. You know, I was really bought in on a lot of the Winnipeg Jets youth. I think a lot of guys like Brad Lambert, Rucker McGordy are studs. Uh, both Thomas Millage and Dom DeVincentis have had really strong um, junior results. And with the whole Boston Bruins dominance last year with Olmark and Swayman, I was thinking maybe a young, properly developed tandem is the way of the future. And I was looking at options, right? Like as, as I think a lot of people were, but I think at the end of the day, what people realize is that like, you're never going to have another Connor Hallibuck, just the same way that like, you know, for example, the Edmonton Oilers should not even consider a rebuild, um, you know, while Connor uh, McDavid is on, 
you know, their, their staff sheet there and then things like that. I, I consider them to be almost equally impactful players at this point. Um, you know, one has the, the luxury of being in a more impactful position of goaltender, but like, I think it's the kind of thing that if you have that guy, you should just run with it. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with that way. Um, my fear was that they were going to sign one and not the other. That was my biggest fear. And the fact that they signed both and then started making a couple more commitments to players like Nino Niederreiter and then even the Sean Monaghan trade this year feels like a bought-in approach, which is what you need because the last thing I want is to to sign all these guys, whatever, and then just have seven years of you know consecutive first-round exits. And I do think that this is a team that still has time to make a couple more additions and things like that to make a run for it this year, but has the cap space and the players on hand to continue to be, you know, not, not contending necessarily depending they'll have to make other moves in order to do so, but be competitive at least for the next stretch. When they traded Dubois, I leaned back in my chair and I thought to myself, I like this trade for the Kings because Dubois is a very good player when he wants to be. But getting that from him, as somebody who is a little more versed in his game and understands his game, what is it? What what is it you can tell when he's playing at an engaged in an engaged way that it's just not there all of the time? What's kind of the difference? Other everybody's seen the clip. Everybody sees the clip of him in Columbus where he just went out there and glided for forty seconds and came back off. But as somebody attentive attentively watching him night in night out. What jumps out at you as the inconsistency? What in his game is off when he's not not right? right? Yeah, my thing is the dominance of his shoulder. I think when he, like you said, the gliding piece, like there, there is a lot of that that you see when he's a little bit more complacent out there and stuff like that. But when he puts down a shoulder, it is impossible to stop him. And that works defensively and offensively. So, you know, if you have a winger coming down the stretch and he's getting boxed out by Pierre-Luc Dubois, he is not getting through and the same thing happens when purely Dubois is breaking up the ice and he has a rush if he has the puck his control is really really strong and maybe it's just really hard to do that all the time I don't know what it is or maybe you know I can feed into all the theories that all these other people have because it's just been years of eh. and I've heard a lot of off-ice conversations about him as a person and things like that and I don't want to you know speculate too much but there are things about just you know the the love of hockey perhaps is just not you know, the, the competitive edge maybe is not the same as it is with a lot of his teammates. And so the fact that he can when he wants to, that hasn't gone away. And we just don't know if he really wants to. And that doesn't sound like very insightful analysis by any means, but it you almost have to assume and believe that's the case because we've seen, like, I think if you just wanted to sit and watch the series where they swept the Tampa Bay Lightning or the series where they they knocked out um, the Toronto Maple Leafs to just watch that clip. Like, it's very obvious that there's an ability there. And we saw it in flashes during his time in Winnipeg. And I'm sure they've seen it in flashes in Los Angeles. I've seen a couple pieces come up. But it's the shoulder for me and the ability to just be a wall that um, I genuinely don't know if I've ever seen that from another NHL player in this time who can do that for, you know, periods of a game or something like that when he's on. It's it's very exceptional. And I just, I genuinely don't know if they've seen it at all this year in Los Angeles, which you can't pay eight and a half million dollars for a guy who's one of the best in the league at something less than 2% of the time. <laughs> how do you feel about the return for him at the time? And how do you feel about it now? I like to think that I actually had a pretty good grasp on the return of the time. And I still feel pretty good. Uh, I felt this way and then I didn't. And now I do again kind of thing, which was I was really excited about Velarde. I was not excited about Ayafalo. And I did not know who Rasmus Kapari was, nor was (laughs) I overly concerned. Um, 
moved to the start of the season. Gabe Velarde gets hurt super early, so I was still very optimistic about him because he had a good quick start, and I also just think he's a really talented player from his sample in, in Los Angeles. So I was still excited about him. Alex Iafalo stepped up early in the season, and I really, really liked him, and Rasmus Kapari also. I really fell in love with both of them in the month of October and November. Um, both of them have kind of fallen off a little bit for me, specifically Alex Iafalo. I can't be too hard on Gabe, on um, Rasmus Kapari, pardon me, because he's been hurt, and then he's been scratched for, for a good chunk of the time. To be fair, it partially is because he didn't do a whole ton, but he was given limited minutes, and I thought he was really effective on the penalty kill, uh, and also just provided a burst of energy and speed to the fourth line that made them, you know, a little bit more difficult to play against which is what you want when you cycle out that fourth line the hope is that they can just provide some energy and momentum for you when you put out the the big guns afterwards uh, which is what I think he's more than capable of doing and I've I've been pleased with his game uh Gabe Velarde has been a superstar I'm a really really big fan of that player I think um he's really really talented I think he provides um a skill set net front that the Winnipeg Jets have been lacking for a really long time uh, and I think he's enjoying his time here so far and Alex Iafalo has kind of been bumped around the lineup a lot he's played probably more than anyone on this team and even distribution at the very very top of the lineup and the very very bottom so uh, I, I feel for him in the sense that he's kind of had to adjust his game a lot depending on who he's playing with I don't love him in the role that he's been given as being kind of the guy to immediately get promoted to the top six when something goes wrong just because I think the players that we have in the top six when they need to be rejuvenated a little bit they need someone with a little bit more of an offensive punch because like you were saying like don't throw someone up there because you're like oh Kyle Connor needs to play defense no he doesn't um so I would rather them see them bump up guys who have a little bit more uh, offensive instinct up there but um all in all I'm pleased with the return Alex Iafalo is kind of my question mark on that one because Rasmus Kapari even if he turns into nothing um not a high cap hit and not one of the cornerstone pieces of that trade so it is what it is and Gabe Velarde's been super and I've been really happy about him so uh all in all I think now I've kind of gone back to my excited about Gabe Velarde temperate on Alex Iafalo and question mark on Rasmus Kapari somehow at the end of February here is still kind of true is Cole Perfetti a guy now? Can I confidently say Cole Perfetti's a guy? Because the Jets have had him, and I want to talk about Vili Hanola in a little bit, but they've had the two of those guys, I feel like, since I was in college, and I'm 26 now. So at this point, I've been waiting for them to kind of have their moments. It feels like Perfetti's there now. <sighs> I <laughs> so he was. And then these last couple months have been really weird with Cole Perfetti. We've gone to the point of where he was, you know, about to set his own goal scoring record for a season in December or whatever it was. And, um, you know, getting good, meaningful power play minutes and playing excellent with Nikolai Ehlers and Vlad Nemeskov doing some really important work to now being in a 13-game pointless drought, demoted to the fourth line, and Rick Bonus openly saying that he's just trying to find a way to keep him in the lineup. So I am very... I'm being yo-yoed by this whole Cole Perfetti thing. I fully think he's a guy. I think he is absolutely a guy. I think he has positive results on every line that he's been on. All of his lines are like... It's stupid. They're like 58% Corsi or something like that. Where And like expected goals percentages and stuff like that. And like pretty much no one else on the Jets is, especially not their scoring lines. A lot of their scoring lines, it's like, oh, it's okay if they don't play defense because they're scoring goals. Uh, but they're still getting outscored game in, game out. Not Cole Perfetti's line. Um, but that being said, they haven't been scoring a ton lately. Um, he's gotten demoted to the fourth line, which I don't think is an excellent fit. I spoke about this for a really long time on a couple different shows that I've been on just because... 
we have so many thoughts about the player, but like kind of my be all end all conclusion is that I don't think there's anyone better suited to be playing in the top six right now that has a better, that will have a better result with players like Nikolai Ehlers and Vlad Nemesikov and, and Sean Monaghan or whoever's up on that second line right now. Um, but the team is not super bought in on Cole Perfetti and his performance right now. And I, I'm struggling with that because we have a lot of other players who are, you know, in pointless droughts and, and who are getting hemmed in in their own zone and those kinds of things. And there is no good result that he is dead last in or even close to dead last in. And there is no bad results that he is even close to the top of the heap with. So I don't really know. I feel like the the frustration with him is slightly misplaced, but it's also, you know, easier to scapegoat things on the young guy than it is on the older guys for NHL coaches. So I've been struggling with him a bit lately, but more his usage and and the treatment of the player as opposed to actually what he's doing. I think he's just what he is, which is a 21-year-old kid who's trying to, you know, figure himself out and, you know, it'll come around. I think he's a really smart player and I think he works really well on the boards and I think he moves the puck really well. He's just maybe a little bit of a sophomore slump right now. Yeah, that happens. You hit the, you hit the uh, physical wall. You're still kind of maturing. As you mentioned, he's still a kid. He's only 21, 22 years old. You mentioned Nemesnikov, who has had a really fascinating career where he's bounced around. You know, he's great if you're doing Puck Dooku or Immaculate Grid. He's been on seven or eight teams. He's really bounced around. And after he was with Detroit, it kind of felt like that might have been it. Like he really might have just been done as an NHL player. But he's been actively good for the jets this year is that a case of the environment being good or has he tapped into something that maybe he hasn't had in recent years i have no idea listen <laughs> like i don't know like i i didn't keep that good of a finger on the pulse of Vladimir Mesikov ahead of his trade to winnipeg i knew who he was i knew because he's from the mark shifley draft year i think so he like he's been around for a long time um and he came here and I thought he was really effective, um, you know, in the short period that he was here at the end of last year. I was like, oh, this guy is cool in my bottom six. Like, I don't mind him, whatever. And they signed him again this offseason and I wasn't surprised or whatever. And immediately he has become this team's new Matthew Perot. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you have this big staple piece of the Pierre Luc Dubois blockbuster trade that comes in in Gabe Velarde, who gets injured in the second, third game of the year. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, Vlad Nemesikov, you were on the fourth line and that's where we wanted you all year. Nuh-uh. You are now going to play 18, 19 minutes a night on our second line. It's like, Oh, okay. But he was like, all right, I'll manage. And he played, you know, he was playing wing and then he was playing center and he was getting his wingers bumped and all those kinds of things. But he was cool as a cucumber, stable, whatever, like positive, positive, positive results across the board. Uh, you know, they're a little bit healthier now. Oh, back down to the fourth line, Vlad Nemesikov goes. Okay, cool. They're still really positive results down there. He has had a positive touch on every line he's been on, but it's because I think he's just such a versatile player that he can be a supporting guy. And so when he was on that second line, he was playing with a guy like Nikolai Ehlers. And what you need is someone who is a good stabilizing supporting guy who's okay to kind of just let that guy run around and do whatever he wants and it's like i'll just be here in the front of the net to tap in your rebounds or i'll just be here kind of floating at the top because when this you know burns you i can back check and all those kinds of things and i just think it was a really nice fit um and he's been exceptional. Like, I am so pleased with that signing. I had no idea that I would be so happy with him. I I and most Jets fans don't want him playing in my top six going into the playoffs sort of thing. Like, I think we have more talent on this roster than that, than, uh, that he needs to play such a big role. But 
every time there was a challenge that needed to be filled, Vladimir Meskov was the guy and he did so with grace and he did so, you know, super, super chill and easy with almost no learning curve. Like it's been really impressive. I can't say enough good things about him. The Jets have done a really good job of collecting those middle six forwards who are versatile. They can really play anywhere. They're not going to flash in any particular way. Like at last year's deadline, while every single Ranger fan was talking about Patrick Kane and Tarasenko, I was just whispering in the corner, can we get Nino Niederreiter? Can we please get Nino Niederreiter? And that's another guy who's been around on a bunch of different teams. And the Jets liked what they got so much, they gave him a multi-year deal in the offseason. What is it about him that I, I don't know if it's a him thing and Nemesnikov, something about the way the Jets have been constructed has really given them a versatility in the way they deploy their guys. And him in particular has always had he's always had really solid possession statistics. He's always had really good transition statistics, but it feels like him and Nemesnikov have really kind of thrived in the last two years there in Winnipeg. Yeah, no, and I I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that locker room and stuff like that, because it just seems like we flipped a switch with this team where people are just pleased to be here and everyone just seems really bought in on the group and all those kinds of things, as opposed to, you know, guys being traded. And then all of a sudden, once they're gone, you hear like, yeah, I was miserable. And it's like, wait, what happened over there? And I think um, that's been a big piece of it. And I've always tried to be such a results person, results person. But that was I also, I think, just kind of suppressing a little bit the fact that like, my hockey team was not an exciting hockey team to play for. And that vibes were hundred percent, a big piece of why they weren't performing to the capacity they needed to. And that a lot of that seems to have changed this year, maybe with some of the changes of the letter placements on jerseys, maybe with some of the, the coaching staff. I don't know what it is. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not in that room. I, I don't know for sure, but guys like, you know, Rider, I think they feel valued here. Nino Niederreiter, um, you know, is a fan favorite. He is so loved and he's been stapled to Adam Lowry and they've just been kind of told to run. And they're like, Hey, we're just going to throw you out there and we're going to give you some rough matchups. If we're going to be honest with you, or just want you to manage them. Um, and if you, you know, get the puck, run with it, like run up there, try and, you know, do, do the beer, like, well, like throw your shoulder down and just charge that net and do those kinds of things. And, and Nino Niederreiter is one of those players that like personally, like I've been interested in seeing him moving up actually in the lineup a little bit to take over the, a role in that second line, as opposed to someone like Alex Iafalo when the situation arises that they need someone to move up. Um, but I think the Jets are scared to break up the line that he's on with Adam Lowry and Mason Appleton because that line has been together since the first game of the season and they have not split up once. There was, um, you know, a little bit of a, a time where there was a little bit of movement and then a little bit of a slow kind of a, a lull time for them but they've been really consistent and I think a big reason for that is his performance I think he just brings such a dynamic like you said possession and, and transition addition to that line where you know the whole shutdown line has an added flair of you know people are actually afraid to play against them and it's also not just that offense dies for the other team with them but um you know you have to have your defense a little bit ready too because if Nino Niederreiter charges at your net like there is a chance that he will score um and and even if that's not as much of the case with uh, someone like Adam Lowry or Mason Appleton, like that line is definitely well-respected in the league. You know, we hear a lot of commentary about how people don't enjoy playing against them and stuff like that, which is really exciting to hear. And I think they just feel he and, and Vladimir both uh, feel that their roles are really, really valued by this organization because they are, and they should be. No, I was very surprised when I was looking up stats and that was their most common line. They had a positive goal share. And the matchups and the zone starts like everything is set up for that line to be bad. 
everything possible to give them a difficult environment is the is there and they've been actively good which is really it's just interesting because so often we hear coaches talk about well i like them as a matchup line and then you go and look at the underlyings and they're getting their skulls caved in they're you know low 40s and all the key metrics they have a negative goal share and it's they're playing hard minutes they're blocking shots and I'm not lost on the effect of that type of play where it's not going to translate to the underlying numbers. But as a fan, when I hear my coach say, well, yeah, that's my matchup line. They're my defense first line and they're not actively defending that. That really sets off alarm bells. So to see a good example of this, you know, they have a good example of this. Calgary does with um, Backland, Manjapani, Coleman, Tampa Bay did when they won the three cups in a row with Coleman, Gordon, Manjapani, where that type of line is really useful. And we'll talk a little bit more about the playoffs later, but that's the type of line that when you're getting into those series where you're going to go against a Dallas, a Vegas, a Colorado, those teams don't have a third line with that type of talent on them. Yeah. And, and I think though, the issue is that, yeah, like a hundred percent, but also we watch highlights of the last couple of games the Jets have played and it's like, Oh, like goal from Pavel Bushnevich. It's like, Oh, look at that. Kyle Connor missed check, whatever. Like that's their role and their intention. But I still feel like we're seeing a lot of one B one, even when the Jets have last change which i don't love because i really think that yeah that line like you said like they have received hard matchups like trust me they have and and i think you know the winnipeg jets second and fourth lines are the ones that are being put out against um easier matchups but the first and the third are getting tougher competition but i still think that third line can take even more away from that top line and i want that top line to get a chance to run a little bit more because Listen, against a Bantam hockey team, they're not going to manage their own zone very well. So why are you putting them against out there against every team's best player and, you know, best winger and all those kinds of things? I don't love it. Um, I know there's a lot of on the fly and all those kinds of things, and maybe you try and adjust as you go. But um, I don't know. I'd like to see them get even more of that rough matchup because, like you said, they're in the positives right now. And even if that means they regress down to, like, only just a bit above positive or, like, a dead break even, doesn't matter to me because if our, you know, forward lines that have all these dynamic goal scorers are able to kind of capitalize on those weaker matchups they have, then that's the intention of that line to begin with. And I don't mind if Adam Lowry goes another 20 games without scoring a goal if it means that, you know, Nikolai Ehlers can score three and, you know, Adam Lowry's given up zero. I I go back and forth on this myself where I don't know if I want my best players out there against the other team's best players to try and cancel them out ideally and then win on your depth or if you would rather try and duck that matchup and you would rather get the bad play not your bad but your lower in the lineup players out there against the other team stars to try and get your better players good matchups and I feel like we see that a lot in the postseason where the stars get matched up head to head and they really kind of cancel each other out. And it's really a matter of the percentages there. And then down the lineup, that's really where those playoff series, especially against the deeper teams, as you get further and further into the postseason, that's where a lot of series get decided. So I go back and forth. I don't know where you're at on that, but no, a hundred percent. Like I, and I am usually team, please don't make my stars play against other team stars, but I think it's because 
my stars are known league wide for how bad they are at defense. And so, but you're right that in the playoffs, I feel like we tend to see that match a little bit more, which is why the Winnipeg Jets earlier season success by committee is still kind of, we're, we're tucking that in our back pocket because I do think they have the versatility in their lineup to, you know, I think Morgan Barron has not played a single shift basically on anything but the fourth line and has set his own, you know, season high goal record and stuff like that. Like they do have some depth scoring that's available to them and I think part of the reason that like Adam Lowry for example isn't scoring as much is because he's in those tougher matchups and not that I think Adam Lowry is an offensive juggernaut I think he's you know if anything but almost but I do think that you know someone has to play against the weaker matchups at any you know matchup over the course of a playoff series and I do genuinely think the Winnipeg Jets have the talent in their 12 to 14 forwards that they will be able to capitalize on the weakest matchups um, if given the opportunity to do so. Is it ever going to happen for Vili Hanola? Ever? I feel so bad. <laughs> I think he's a guy, but he just cannot catch a break ever. No. Oh my gosh. And I don't know for those of you listening, how familiar you are with Winnipeg Jets lore, because this has been going on for years. I showed up like to a game with like a picture of Vili Hanola, like, in the Bernie Sanders, like sitting there mean because I was so frustrated with his usage or lack thereof. This is like two years ago. Like we've been writing this like for like, cause I was already fed up at that point. Like this has been basically since like his D plus one D plus two year. Um, but there are so many factors that kind of play into that one. That's like a sit around a, a bar table and talk about for four hours kind of conversation. Like there is a lot, I feel like that, that kind of makes up for it, but this season was going to be his shot until he injured himself right in that in the preseason there and it was just the absolute worst possible combination of events to happen because after that happened um you know the other guys in the lineup like the the six defensemen have actually had decently good years the only kind of outlier there is in my opinion neil pionk i think neil pionk's had a little bit of a rougher look uh for most of this season but brendan dylan's been really excellent dylan sandberg has turned into an absolute stud and nate schmidt has been the one who's been yo-yoing out of the lineup just because they want to get some reps for logan stanley not performance based because nate schmidt has also been good um and billy hanela from from what i'm hearing at least i don't think is even still 100 healthy and we're almost in march now and it, it was a rough injury to come back from you know high ankle sprain or whatever it was is you know and when you're a player who relies so heavily on their skating and that's part of his big appeal is his transition game and how dynamic of a of a player he is so I think it's been a rough you know kind of comeback for him this organization and I say this as like a management perspective believes in him like Kevin Sheveldayoff believes in Billy Hanela like there's a reason that he hasn't been traded yet like Kevin Sheveldayoff really does want him to get into this lineup um and I think it's just like we might just kind of have to coast out this season and see what happens next year the Jets do have a couple of moves on the defensive end to make ahead of the beginning of next season but I just think a player who hasn't competed at the NHL level consistently ever never mind at all this year um, who's coming back from a really, really difficult injury. I just don't see how the pre-playoff push is the best place to wean him in. Um, and that's coming from literally his biggest fan in the world. Like, I want Billy Handel to play in the NHL probably more than even he does himself. It's just a really difficult recipe right now to try and make 
fit. And I don't know how I feel. I would love to see him get a couple games if he's healthy and ready to do so. Cause I don't think he's going to move the needle enough on this team to win or lose them any hockey games. Uh, so I'd love to see him get some reps, especially if, if the jets think if they don't make a trade for a defenseman, for example, because you know, they're one injury away from Logan Stanley having a role on this team, which cannot happen. So I do think they knew, do need to get him a couple games, if, especially if they don't trade for a defenseman. But I think regardless, they need to try and slot him into the lineup a little bit. I just, I, part of me feels like we would have seen it by now um, if it was going to happen. But also, again, if he's actually still kind of hurt or still start trying to manage this injury, I get it. But it's just been a really, really weird time and a really, really weird player just kind of over the course of, you know, 2019 up until now. He he was a guy I was interested in as a freshman in college because the Rangers were still bad at the, not a freshman, a senior in college. Cause the Rangers were that bad in 2019. And I was still looking, we didn't have Adam Fox yet. We didn't have Truba yet. We didn't have anybody on our defense. And I remember looking through the draft cards and okay, this guy, he can skate. We haven't had a mobile defenseman in a long time. So I hope it happens for him too, because the toolbox is there to be effective, but we talk about it a lot when it comes to prospects, the environment matters so much and you can be really talented, but if you don't get the right landing spot, you don't, get the right opportunity your development changes you lower your ceiling and you become a different player but uh shifting gears and looking more towards the playoffs and something i found interesting was that they were willing to pay the price really early like they traded for sean monahan very early at a point where at that point we kind of all thought the deadline was going to be picking up and that was you know like the beginning of february and now it's been a month basically and there hasn't been anything since the monahan trade do you think there was an advantage to getting it done that early? Or do you think that was just kind of, you know, catching it at the right moment? Yeah, I don't know. I I, I think, though, that just looking at kind of the upcoming UFA market, like I'm kind of glad they did because that was a player that I feel like a lot of teams were going to be willing to, to enter the bidding war for. And I think the Jets sort of decided that that was their guy and that's who they wanted. You know, Sean Monaghan is known for being a really good culture fit. A lot of places he goes, young guys really like him. He's good in the power play. He's good on face-offs that's a huge point of contention for the Winnipeg Jets and all those things so he just kind of checked a lot of the boxes that they were looking for and I think personally at least what what I perceive is that I think you know Kyle Shovel Kyle oh my goodness Kevin Shovel day off um you know kind of made his checkbox of things that he was looking for and then he also made his list of things that he was willing to part with and because the thing with with Kevin Shovel day off is he will walk away from a bidding war if he thinks the price is getting too ridiculous which I do respect to a certain extent but also that means you walk away with nothing and you sometimes don't get the guy that you're looking for um and I think he realized that this guy checked all the boxes and that there was a chance that if this got to kind of the the dying hours of the trade deadline that it might go beyond what he was willing to to pay so I think he kind of just pulled the trigger early um wanted to get this guy especially since a big piece of you know his appeal is the whole culture piece giving more time to get him integrated with the culture make sure he's a fit and all those kinds of things and also kind of assess the need from there because the Winnipeg Jets like do need some help and I think this was a good way for them to identify where the help was needed I think they since bringing him in they realize okay the power play maybe isn't as much of a problem now that we have some personnel that work together and we're changing the way things are running a bit. So now they don't have to look for like a, a Vladimir Tarasenko type or whatever to just be a pure goal scorer sort of thing. I don't know. But I think it sort of changes the way they diagnose the rest of the trade deadline. I'm always a fan of making the move early if you can, because like 
why not get 35 games out of a guy as opposed to 15 or 20 and all those kinds of things to see how it's working and give yourself more time to look to see if you need further insurance pieces. Um, so I'm glad they made that move when they did. I wasn't super sold on the move at the time just because I thought, you know, unloading what I consider to be their most valuable asset, which is the upcoming first round draft pick because the Winnipeg Jets just don't really trade prospects. That's not what they do. Um, so I knew that was their big piece and they already have it. It's, it's no longer in the cupboard, right? So I was like, are we sure that's the guy we want to use it on? Um, but I might end up being wrong. You know, Sean Monaghan's been pretty good for them so far and, you know, just bringing him in to rejuvenate the power play a little bit and give Nikolai Ehlers a center that he's comfortable playing with and all those kinds of things um, has seemed to work out okay so far. So uh, I'm still not fully, fully ready to bite my tongue, but I'm definitely getting closer to it as far as deadline you mentioned that under no circumstances logan stanley can play in the postseason as somebody who's watched logan stanley play hockey i agree with you he is tall that is the only trait of note for this player i understand there are a lot of guys kevin ball tyler myers there are a lot of guys at six seven six eight who are just going to hang around because they're big for that long as far as defensemen and adding are you thinking a seventh defenseman, somebody who's only going to be here in a pinch, who's going to only draw in if there's an injury? Or are you thinking somebody who's going to go right into the top six and play? I don't know. I, I'm very interested because I personally would be looking more for the high impact piece because I do think that, you know, if you're looking seventh defenseman, like I think it's right there in Billy Hanel. I think he'll be ready by then. Um, I also think that, like, listen, I don't hate Cal Capabianco that much either. I think if you needed someone to come in and play, 14 minutes on your deep for a game or whatever. He's not awful by any means. I think they have a couple of those like late insurance pieces, whatever, but I really do not have faith in Neil Pionk playing a high impact role against a really tough playoff mashup. I just don't, I just don't. I, and I feel for him. I wish I did believe in him to that extent, but I think they really need to limit his impact on this team right now um, because I just don't foresee it being the right recipe for success for this team uh, to have him playing against most teams, second top lines and all those kinds of things. Um, so I'm looking for a higher impact piece right now on, on the defense. I'd love to see them bring someone. And I also think the jets have some cap flexibility. They have a couple of pieces that they're willing to move out. You know, their cupboards aren't bare the way some other teams are. So I think they have a little bit of ammunition and all those kinds of things. So I think, it is an opportunity, but I just know that, you know, every team like Chris Tanev, and I'm sure obviously you get this, but like Chris Tanev is like every team's dream trade deadline acquisition, like right-handed defensemen who are actually good at hockey don't grow on trees. And so I think like, for example, that one is a little bit of a pipe dream. I just think the bidding war and the price is going to get too ridiculous for the Jets, especially, you know, already having made the Monaghan trade and all those kinds of things. So I don't know how many high impact pieces there are left, um, but the Jets have done pretty creative things over the course of the trade deadlines, right? Like you mentioned the Nino Niederreiter thing. I honestly, like you might be the first person I've heard talk about their team wanting to trade for him at the time that the Jets did last year, because with the guy with the extra year, we feel like we don't always look at those guys as closely as we look at the pending UFAs. And, but I think especially this year, because of how few pending UFAs there are, um, the Jets are definitely going to take a, a more creative look at this, which I love when they do that. Cause you know, the Nino Niederreiter extension and then the addition uh, ended up being a great fit for them and stuff like that. So if they start looking kind of more, more for an off the board sort of piece i'd be really pleased with them doing that um but i just don't think a seventh defenseman is going to be enough i'd love to see them bring in a little bit of more of someone who can make an impact game in game out so if i gave gm melissa the phone you, chris tanev is the pipe dream that's the top one of one guy you would want he is yeah no for sure i i'm a big fan of chris tanev i think he he would be really excellent i also think um he's a little bit more versatile like the jets have a lot of 
defensemen who have some offensive flair to them and stuff like that. And, you know, for example, where Neil Pionk is playing right now with uh, Brendan Dillon, I wouldn't put Brendan Dillon with Chris Tanev because I think uh, they're kind of, I feel like there's some similarities in their game. It's just like, one is more of like a Walmart version and one is more of a big version, right? Like, you know, but I think um, Chris Tanev brings in some exciting, you know, areas to that that right defensive slot. Uh, and I just think he's a fabulous piece. The Jets would be so lucky to have him. So he, he is the pipe dream, but uh, I'm not uh, not counting my chickens on that one. Could I interest you in a lightly used Noah Hannafin? Yes. Also, yes. <laughs> I, I'd be curious though to hear kind of your thoughts for, and I, I know this is maybe not a, a Flames podcast, but maybe he is a future Winnipeg Jet. Um, so, so can you give me a bit more of a, either a sales pitch on him or like, girl, stay away. <laughs> Noah Hannafin is a good hockey player, but all consensus is he wants to go play in the States. So any Canadian team is probably scared off because you're only getting him for the two months. And being what he is, like objectively, he's the best defenseman available. But because of the conditions of he wants to go back to the States and his next contract is probably going to age poorly just based on the way the market's going on defensemen, like he's probably going to want a contract that starts with at least an eight and he's never going to put up the counting stats to be worth eight million a year. So I would say stay away if I were you. If I were the Devils, you got nothing to lose. If you're a team like Florida, you're a team like Dallas, who's really got nothing to lose and really thinks they could go all the way this year. Noah Hannafin can be your Ryan McDonough if we're talking about like the Tampa Bay model of guy who's good enough to be a first pair, but he's the number three on a great team. He's that type of player. He's that good. Genuinely. It's just his next contract's not going to be. Yeah, no, and I believe you on that. I think Noah Hannafin's been a player that I've been super high on since uh, that stack draft that he went in. I think he's, and, and like you said, probably the best defenseman in that draft, but if you're worried about the other, but oh my God, keep him away from dallas like i i do not want that man on the dallas like get him put send him to new jersey i don't care he can go dougie hamill over there i don't care but keep and chris tanov oh from the dallas stars we have seen some wars in the western conference over the last couple of years i mean winnipeg and dallas have had a couple the most famous one winnipeg and nashville that was that i still think is my favorite playoff series of the last like 10 15 years that doesn't include my team that's one of there was just so much talent everywhere on both of those teams that it should have been obvious that by the time Winnipeg got to the conference final, they were going to be dead because of how grueling a series that was. But God, that was close to peak hockey. Oh my God. I literally like I said and watch replays of that series way more often than for a person to do. Like I used to be like Oilers fans or whoever it was because they would talk about like because they haven't had a lot of playoffs last, or well, they're late 2010, all those kinds of things. And they would refer back to like, I don't know, what was it like 2016? I was like, hey, like, shut up. Like, that was so long. Like, why are you comparing? I have like an entirely different roster now. There's like three of the same guys on. I'm like, I don't care. Like, that was peak Winnipeg Jets, like fourth line center, Adam Lowry, and like Matthew Perot, just like absolutely grinding out there when Ben Sherratt and Tyler Myers kind of like it actually worked that they were just big, bulky lunatics, all those kinds of things like it was literally just oh i i get emotional thinking about it. like that was peak that was peak and everyone agrees everyone talks about all the time like that was peak so the last two things i want to touch on i want to touch on the arena and the Batman stuff and then i want to turn the floor over to you for something you want to talk about how are you taking this as a fan more than anything because 
all of the conjecture, you know, everybody has spent the last 18 months, coyotes, 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 where, when are they going to act like a professional operation? But like, I feel like it's so different for the Jets. I feel like people don't understand the market and that, you know, it's largely people. It's not companies. It's not corporations. And in most markets, that's the bulk of season ticket holders is companies and corporate interests. So as a fan, how are you taking the the news the last few days, weeks? So it's been a weird little stretch here. Um, yesterday, though, I feel like kind of just like, put a pin in it so it was like what, what what were we stressed about like what was the was Gary Bettman and granted I know he knew the line of questioning he was in his media press conference questions he almost seemed at like a loss for words like the back half of his interview was better because like at the beginning he's like what are you talking about he's like literally who said that like who where are you getting this information from because he was just so like no, this team is not moving kind of thing. But this is also coming from the person that accidentally gaslit the entire Jets fan base into thinking the Jets were going to hire Barry Trotz. I know how easy it is for things to hit the rumor mill um, in this market. And then, yeah, like the season ticket sales are down and all those kinds of things. And I've a lot of, read a lot of really interesting articles about it. But, um, you know, you kind of nailed it with... Um, the way this market is built up, a lot of blue collar workers, a lot less corporate partnerships, you know, a lot of people when they start their businesses, and they grow their big businesses, they move them out of Winnipeg, and they move uh, to a more central urban hub somewhere in Canada, or oftentimes they move down to the States and all those kinds of things. There are a lot of pieces at play. Um, but I think just there, there's still a lot of untapped potential, though, like the Winnipeg business community is really, really unique in the sense of like, there are a lot of strong industries because winnipeg is a big enough city that they need all the essential you know financial services and and all the other things like that that someone has to be here and there's no bleeding competition because the next closest urban center that's any bigger than winnipeg um is calgary like there's nowhere like it's a very very interesting kind of geographical location interesting business makeup i go to the biggest business school that is in manitoba and i see how connected the school is with the community how connected the community is with each other there's a lot of potential with the business community in winnipeg i really do believe that but it's just at the root of it smaller um and that's kind of the way that it is i did a rough calculation yesterday um you know there need to be basically the population of winnipeg every single person needs to go to a jets game over the course of a season in order for them to fill the arena like they need to put almost 700,000 butts in seats to sell out Canada Life Center to capacity every home game and there are about 700,000 people in Winnipeg right so like that's just a crazy population discrepancy that doesn't exist in a lot of other markets um but all in all like I feel fine because I think that you know the NHL has a lot of pride I don't think they want to move a market that they just moved um you know 10 12 years ago like you know it, it looks bad on them to be like we believe in this market in 2011 and then 15 years later be like psych I really don't think they want to do that um I also think that um you know true north has kind of established themselves as more of a real estate company out now as opposed to like a a service company or whatever they considered themselves to be before in the entertainment industry and they are doing a lot of work in the real estate development of downtown winnipeg that's actually really impressive and you know i'm not always someone to to speak super highly without prompt of true of true north i think they do a lot of good things but i'm also not afraid to to kind of criticize them or or bring up suggestions when given the chance to but i'm really impressed with a lot of the plans they have to rejuvenate the downtown space in winnipeg and the winnipeg jets are a huge part of that so i just feel like there are so many pieces contributing to the fact that like this is not this shouldn't be a problem this some of the messaging i think that's come out from the organization um people have been rubbed the wrong way by and i think it's because 
the Winnipeg Jets, they need to be a very community oriented organization or community oriented team. Everyone needs to be, you know, feeling like they're involved and on the same page. But I think the just the wrong part of the messaging that's come out is that it made everyone feel like this isn't for you to be aware of. It's for you to feel responsible for. And that's where the discrepancy is for me. People should be aware of declines in sales and all those kinds of things, but no individual person should feel any sense of guilt, any sense of accountability for any of the issues that the Jets are facing. So I think that's where kind of the communication started to fall apart. Um, But all in all, like, I feel kind of okay. I know I've gone on like a big rant about this, but I think, you know, Jets fans should just feel like, you know, if, if they are, you know, making a lot of money, um, that maybe they could contribute if they wanted to, but like the average Joe Blow Jets fan should not feel accountable, nor should they feel like this team is going to relocate if they don't buy their one single 10,000 set of season tickets. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Cause at the end of last season, that video true North put out was kind of like trying to like guilt people into buying season tickets almost where it was like, we were supposed to guilt guys the guys community into buying season tickets. Yeah. But then when anyone can watch it, they're like, is this fucking play about us? You know, like, and it's like, you know, it's, it's not the ideal messaging. <laughs> Completely agreed. And now this is your moment, Alyssa. What do you want to talk about, about the Winnipeg Jets? What's grinding your gears lately? I think what's been grinding my gears lately is Rick Bonus, And this is so interesting because I was really bought in on him a little while ago and all those kinds of things. And, um, but lately, it's just been really interesting the way that he's kind of talking. And I, and I give a lot of credit to the Winnipeg media because there's been, you know, some some questioning and commentary where, you know, for example, Nikolai Ehlers gets demoted to 13 minutes a night. And so the media goes and asks and they're like, why? And he's like, oh, well, he's got to manage his own zone a little bit better. Um, and then the next game, the top line has, you know, three goals scored against them. So the media goes and asks and they're like, hey, why didn't you demote them? Because they also you know, we're not managing their own zone properly. And then Rick Bonus will say, well, there's more than just three guys playing defense. There are five and there's a goalie, so whatever. And it's like, I just feel like the messaging is really kind of confusing lately, the public-facing messaging. And granted, I'd much rather public-facing messaging be confusing than what the messaging is internally. And if the players are all on board with what's going on, like, who cares? Like, I don't, it's fine. But it just seems like there's something that's like kind of off, like, you know, things are not perfectly aligned in the universe right now with the way the Jets are being deployed. And just the commentary has been really interesting. So I'm very curious to see what their plan is uh, with Nikolai Ehlers because, you know, he goes in game in, game out. And again, net positive player, net positive player and all these kinds of things. Um, and the top line has been atrocious every single game. Like they're literally like, I'm not joking, Nick. It's like 15% control of expected goals per game at five on five. Like I'm, it's, it, it's awful. Like it's horrific. Like you, you have to like zoom out on a chart in order to just see them. Like they have been really, really poor. Um, And the issue though, is that they've started scoring at five on five, which is really excellent. And I think pretty much every other team in the NHL has most of the guys in their top line also on their first line power play. So the jets have Mark Shifley, Kyle Connor and Gabe Velarde as their top, pair or their top line but it's also three of the five guys on their power play unit and Gabe Lardy's got a bunch of power play goals and Kyle Connor has a couple and they're like oh yeah like those guys have been scoring a lot and it's like when there's one less man on the ice like I don't think we're looking at this properly here like I just am very confused with kind of the evaluation that's going on with the performance of the top line because they've been really bad at five on five so that's kind of been my gripe there is not just that they've been bad but they haven't been held accountable in any way shape or form whatsoever so it's been really interesting the last little stretch this is a recency bias thing because this has just been really bad basically since like 
the end of the all-star break like it hasn't been a super long time but it's alarming and a lot of Jets fans are very very confused about the messaging that's coming forward to the public about it thank you so much my dude I'm very glad we were able to make this work uh, that'll do it for this Liberty Blue conversation. We will be back later next week. We've got an Islanders lined up. We've got a few different teams lined up over the next few weeks to get you guys set for the playoffs. Make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Go throw Alyssa a follow over on Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now. I'll flash it on YouTube, and it'll obviously be in the Twitter, but it'll be in the description for the podcast as well. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Uh, later.